We will get back to that next week and uh, see if you have spent time in the book of Daniel this week. I hope so. We're going to spend time in the book of Daniel today, chapter number two, please. Daniel chapter number two. And for some of you who are working from a, uh, maybe you've got it on your cell phone or an app of some kind and you're saying, where, where? Verse 29, all right? 229 is where we're going to get started here this morning. We're talking about being uncompromising, having a resolution to follow and obey God regardless of the consequence of living in a pagan world. Trust God regardless. There are so many different applications that that little phrase can work its way into. Trust God regardless. Today we're going to talk about the future. What a great time to remind you to trust God regardless. There's something about the future that we don't know. We haven't been there yet. The experience is still uncertain to us. Daniel was in those very same shoes many years ago. Getting a glimpse of what is coming, as we're going to see in Daniel chapter 2, could be very overwhelming. Especially if you're a man named Daniel. You're about 16 years of age. I'll remind you of that. He's young. He's a captive in Babylon. He's in class to become a Babylonian. And what he writes concerns not only his future, but yours as well. And I find that very interesting. Daniel, probably before he was captured, envisioned himself of leading a normal life. Whatever you call normal. We all think that, you know, as kids we grew up, we have this idea in our minds of what life ought to look like. And Daniel probably was one who was working on a trade that he was going to learn to do a task for his career. He would have been one who had gone through studies in the synagogue in order to have learned of God's word and, and what to do with that. Uh, he was probably aiming toward marriage as well, possibility. Um, by that age, usually they're close to marriage. They're 16 years of age. Uh, they probably mapped out this idea of living a long life and what that was going to look like. And then suddenly he's captured by the Babylonians and taken to a foreign country. That's the Daniel that we talk about here when we're studying our passage. Um, and then we have Nebuchadnezzar. And he's given a dream. And that's what the whole chapter is centered on. A dream given to Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. And it was the Lord's purpose not to give De uh, Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation during the dream. He just gave him the dream. The Lord uh, could have given that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and maybe he would have never shared it with anybody, <laughs> what the interpretation was. It wouldn't have ever been in our book. It would have never been in our attention if he had gotten the, the reason for it as well. But God reserved it in his wisdom for Daniel to interpret it for us so that he could write those things down. And here we are, 2,500 years later, talking about it still. That's pretty impressive to me. This dream maps out a series of kingdoms. Most are fulfilled. Not all of them. 
We are in the kingdom of one of them. And we'll talk about that when we get into it. But we await the final fulfillment, fulfillment when the kingdom of our Lord has begun. And this also talks about that too. Start in verse 29 with me. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would happen in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will happen. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me by any wisdom which is in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone was struck, that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you will come, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all, those in piece, all these in pieces. Now, in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdoms will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will be combined with one another in the seeds of men, but they will not cling to one another even as iron does not combine with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up, which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God who has made known to the king that that or what will happen in the future, so the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now you got all that, right? It's pretty detailed. It's pretty interesting. We're going to walk through this, but we're going to ask for help. 
Heavenly Father, we bow before you because you're the one who has given this dream in the first place. You are the one who designed it for Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel to understand, and now we are seeking to understand it. So we pray that you guide us in our study today and in the weeks to come as we examine these things. Uh, may our hearts be drawn to you. That's the first and foremost thing that we desire of all this, that we come to know you better, that we trust you more, especially that we trust you regardless. For we live in a day and age of uncertainty, but we have a God who is our certainty, and that's where our hope lies today. So I pray, Lord, that you will work in our lives today in what we learn and what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this demanded pictures. So we're going to start with a picture here this morning. Um, I've got a little bit of help here. Every time I say click or something like that, he's going to change my slide for me. But uh, there's not many slides for you to look at, but there's your first one. I give credit where it's due. This particular picture was taken from the Israel My Glory magazine. If you've ever seen their magazine, they have outstanding illustrations. And that's a pretty impressive picture. And that's the one that they uh, had. I took it for our purpose here today. Uh, the statue. The statue. Uh, you, O king, verse 31 said, were looking, behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the image was made of fine gold. The breast and the arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partly of clay. We start with the description of the statue that you have in front of you. The head of gold, the arms and the chest of silver, the thigh, the belly of bronze, legs of iron, the feet. An iron and clay mixture. Large and extraordinary, the text said. Of extraordinary splendor. If you're reading a King James, it's the brightness of excellence. It's pretty impressive. Matter of fact, it goes on to say, and it was terrible. And that doesn't mean it failed a test in school. Terrible is it was able to induce terror. It was fearful. It was... It was frightening. It startled. Those are the Hebrew words for the depiction of this thing. Awesome. What a sight to wake up uh, or to be in your dreams, to see this image in your mind. We can assume from the materials of it, it was massively heavy. If it was that large, it was that heavy. Just consider the weight of the materials that made it up. Uh, probably very expensive, too. If you think about the uh, value of gold in our day, silver's not all the way up there. Bronze, well, that's mostly copper, and it's got some elements mixed into it to make it what it is. Um, iron, that's pretty heavy material. Clay, well, you could dig that out of your backyard, can't you? Probably all of us have a scoop or two out there if we wanted to go look for it. But the items in this come with an awesome description. 
had to have been very impressive to Nebuchadnezzar. Matter of fact, it's the number one reason we think he did what he did in chapter 3. He built a giant statue. <laughs> and we think, well, he must have been really impressed with what he saw here. Well, God had revealed this to him. Revealed it to him in a dream and gave him a desire to know what it was. And I think that's rather significant because uh, without that meaning, without wanting to know what is that, all you have is an image of a statue in your head. That's like watching a TV show without the sound. You just see the picture, but you don't really get the commentary of what's happening in the scene. I love thinking about it that way. Uh, quite a few years ago, I, some of you know this, some of you don't, um, I was able to travel to Brazil, and uh, I flew down there to spend time at a Bible college and teach at a Bible college in Brazil. I uh, worked with the Brazil Gospel Fellowship Mission. They actually gathered every year for a uh, refreshing time of all their missionaries would get together, and, and I was their guest speaker. And so I was down with Al and Nadine uh, Pierschbacher and, and Elisa and, and uh, really enjoyed a, a couple of good weeks down in Brazil and teaching and sharing and things like that. But it was on the flight that uh, we, I got on. It was a flight coming out and flying most of the time in the dark. And maybe that was fine because we were going over large bodies of water. And I wasn't too thrilled with that idea. So dark was just fine with me. But... Uh, in all of the seats, because we were on this kind of a flight, there were monitors right on the back of the seat in front of you, monitors, so that you can watch movies and such. Well, I'd never had that privilege before, so I started fiddling with it to say, well, what does this do? What does this do? And I just kept putting, pushing buttons until the other, whole thing turned to Chinese. And now I was in trouble because I didn't know which button to push to get it back because it was all written in Chinese. So I'm sitting there pushing away, trying to figure it out. Well, all the while, sitting next to me was a couple, a Spanish-speaking couple. We, we couldn't communicate. We nodded and smiled and things like that. I didn't want to give them the impression I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm sitting there looking at the screen, actually looking like I was actually studying it and figuring it out. <laughs> And a movie started on it. I said, wow, okay. It was uh, How to Train Your Dragon or something like that. Some of you would know what that movie was. Uh, it started to play, but it had no sound. I had never seen the movie before. But I sat and watched it for two hours. Because <laughs> I didn't know how to turn that thing off. And I, I had no idea what they were talking about. I just watched the picture all the way down there. And I thought, well, that was pretty impressive. Um, so after the two weeks were over, got back on the plane, started heading back. Same thing. It went Chinese on me and played that movie. And I still didn't know what it was about. I just watched the pictures. And I think of that every now and then when I think of the fact that this picture that Daniel got in his dream did not come with an interpretation. He did not know what that meant. He saw the images in his mind, but he had no description of it. He had no idea what it meant. It was just some large, impressive statue. It had to mean something important, he thought, but he could not know it. 
Let's go to the second slide. This is the second thing he saw in his dream. A stone. Now pick it any size you want. It doesn't say how big, how small, whatever it was. It just says, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. So I went all over the internet to find a stone. There it is. It was just a stone. But he said it was cut out. Now, we can't guess for sure. We might assume that's out of the side of a mountain. Maybe it was cut out of a quarry. We don't know. It doesn't say where it came from. Uh, it was just cut out. What I find kind of interesting, just a side note, but the word is gazar. Gazar in the uh, Aramaic, it was also the same word used for what a diviner or an astrologer was called, a gazar cut out as if they're able to determine something. And this word somehow has all the same meaning. Uh, but it's used all the way through Daniel too, and it's almost like a little play on words because who couldn't solve the dream? It was the same people, the diviners and the astrologers and all who were supposed to be able to determine something. And all it was was a rock, and it doesn't sound like it'd be too hard to figure out, but they couldn't do it. So, it's not uncommon to have seen stones in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, I'm sure. We have pictures of the old Babylonian uh, um, leftovers where the archaeologists have been in there. They've been digging up the artifacts. They've been digging up parts of the city. So we say, well, they knew how to cut stone. That was very impressive. That's not uncommon. Matter of fact, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, they were making stone and brick out of the supplies around them to build towers. When the Egyptians captured Israel and put them to work, remember, they were building things. Now, they were building again with bricks, but they had to get the supplies from the field, and they had to mix it right and build with that. But what we see later in time is city walls going up of, of giant stones. We've seen the pyramids and things, at least in pictures. And we've seen the massive amount of stone used to build up such things. Uh, the temple itself was huge, made out of stone, large stone that was brought in from a quarry in another location. And they built the temple out of that. So all that to say is that's not uncommon to see a stone cut out. It's something that they've seen before. We have no size for this stone. It doesn't say anything about its size. But what it did was shown to Nebuchadnezzar. It must have been shocking to him to have seen this in his dream. That statue was magnificent. It was very impressive. And then the next thing he sees, slide number three, the stone hit the statue. Now, I'll give you credit again. That picture came from the Jehovah Witness website, just so you know. But uh, I couldn't find anybody that gave me a good picture of the statue being hit with a stone. Now, it seems to me that they stole their statue from somebody, but that's a different story. Um, so, what he says in verse 34, you, you continued looking until the stone was cut without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that they, not a trace of them was found. 
Not a trace of them was found. The stone struck the statue in its most vulnerable place, done at the feet. It pulverized the statue. It didn't just break off a part and leave the rest laying. It pulverized it. It crushed it. The entire statue, it says right there, was crushed all at the same time. All at the same time. And I find that very interesting that the next phrase is, and it turned to chaff. The unwanted part of, say, a wheat plant. We've all seen it. It's that stuff blowing out of the top of the combine, right? When you're going through the field and you say, what's all that? It's, it's the chaff. It's the unwanted part being blown up, being blown out, being spread out as it goes out into the fields. It was the chaff from the summer threshing floor, the text says. And the wind carried it away. Pick up wind, blow it off. It's gone. Nothing left of the statue. Nothing left to see. Remember, this was his dream. He did not know what that meant. <laughs> I find it interesting, though, how often in the scriptures, God uses chaff to describe even the unrighteous. Psalm 1 is such a fascinating psalm to me. You know it. You probably can even quote it. But the words go, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. And then he turns his attention to the unrighteous. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They don't pass the test. They're not able to withstand. There's no strength in them to stand in the test of the judgment of righteous. Sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's interesting how chaff and wind and perish all seem to come together over and over and over. It's just interesting to me because the wicked think that they are permanent. There's some mentality to it. Whether it's uh, dictators or political powers or whatever they think they have in their strength. Their arsenal, their wealth, their political uh, office, they think it will endure forever. At least they act like that. And sometimes we think that too, don't we? They're going to last there forever. But God says... The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind blows away. Blows away. You know, if life is just a vapor anyway, and that's a description scripture uses for us, we have hope. We have a future. We have some place that we're going to spend eternity, and we look forward to it. Chaff is not wanted, not desired. It blows away. It has no place to stand. 
There are a lot of descriptions like that in Psalm 1 about the righteous man. But what I find interesting, the righteous man is described in a lot of different ways. But in Psalm 1, he is described by his action just one way. And it says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. This is true of Daniel, by the way. If you put it back into the picture of Daniel's uh, biography, in Daniel chapter 9, I love the way it starts, and I'm going to read you just a couple of verses here. But in Daniel chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books. That's interesting. He had a library he could go to. And that library included God's word. What was written at this point would have been the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Much of the history, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Chronicles hasn't been written yet. Psalms has. Job has. Proverbs has. Ecclesiastes has. Song of Solomon has. Isaiah has been recorded. Jeremiah has been recorded. I bring that out to your attention because Daniel had a book of Jeremiah. As he's reading it, notice what it says here. He observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. He is going through Jeremiah's book. And he says, aha, <laughs> there is something here for us. Because what he found was in Jeremiah's prophecy, the judgment of the Babylonian captivity was 70 years in duration. And Daniel is sitting there and saying, 70 years are up. It's time for the next thing. And so Daniel reads in the book that these years of completion for the desolation of Israel were upon them 70 years. And immediately he responds to that. Do you know what he did? He packed his luggage to move, right? No. <laughs> you would think, well, that would be what I'd do. If 70 years are up, let's go. But no, it says... I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication. And I fasted with sackcloth and ashes. He had a response to God's word. The wicked do not have that response. It's interesting to me that it's those who are spiritual who stop and realize God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin. And the chap will not stand in the judgment. Interestingly, that whole beautiful statue is reduced to chaff. And it blows away. God raises up kings. God pulls them down. Guess who's in charge? He is. This whole statue is impressive to me. A simple, simple lesson that we ought to get to know our God better. Because you won't know unless you read. You have his word, read it. Because when you read it, you start to understand. And when you start to understand, you start to respond. And that's what Daniel did. He responded to what he has read. And so the Bible's been given to us to read. 
I'm being a pastor for a minute, okay? I'm aiming right at every one of us. It's meant to be read. It's given to us to read, to understand, to respond. The Bible study that you do is never complete until you do something with it. That's application. That's what we're called to do. How did I get off on this? Is it a rabbit trail along the way? No, it's not. We're talking about chaff. And I don't want you to look like that. I don't want you to be like that. Chaff has no ability to hold fast when the winds come up. It cannot hold up. It's very easy to see it, and I could bring it out in several places. But houses built on sand don't hold up in the storm. Immature believers in Ephesians chapter 4 are tossed about by every wind and every wave of doctrine. We need stability. We need to be standing strong. We need to be growing. We need to be maturing. We need a solid foundation. This statue did not have one, did it? The minute it was struck with the rock, it was destroyed. It was torn apart. It was obliterated. And that's what I think is rather impressive here. When I just look at the picture, the foundation did not hold up when the stone hit it. When we talk about our future... Trust God regardless. God is the one we trust. That's where we anchor our hope. Is that true? That's what we do. But that's the initial pictures. That's all he got so far. He saw a statue. He saw a stone. A stone came out, cut out by hand, without hands, came out, destroyed the statue. The statue blew away. Let's see what's next. One more picture for you. But the stone that was struck, that, that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. I couldn't find a picture of a mountain inside the earth, so I put it beside it. Close enough. It became so big, it incorporated the whole earth. The imagery is easy, perhaps, to understand. But a growing stone is not, when you think about it. <laughs> Stones, that's unnatural for stones to grow. Believe it or not. I know what you think in your fields. In Birmingham one year, we, we decided we wanted a little garden. Uh, if you know anything about Birmingham, stones are easy to find. Just go down this far in the ground and you got another one. So I spent a whole summer digging all the stones out of my little garden area. I went down deep. Dug them all out, cleared them all out, set it up for a beautiful, beautiful garden. When I came back the next year to put it in, it was absolutely full of stone again. I don't know how that happened. But that's, I just noticed stones, where do they keep coming from? We don't usually see stones grow, we see them break apart. We see pieces come off, we see them slowly crumble and become smaller. This is an extraordinary stone. It's growing bigger and bigger and bigger until it fills the whole earth. That's a pretty impressive sight. You've got an impressive statue. You've got an unusual stone. And Daniel gets to verse 36 and he says, Now, that was the dream. That was the dream. We all enjoy interpretations, don't we? We like to know, what does that mean? 
What does that mean? It was only the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had on his mind. It's a movie without sound. He didn't know what it was all about. If that's all there was to it, what if Nebuchadnezzar had never wanted to know what it was all about? We would have never had a record of it, as far as we could guess. But he went at least 24 hours without knowing what it meant. He had his dream, and then the next day he called in his wise men, and he asked them to tell us what it is, and they couldn't, so he set on a decree to kill them. And Daniel asked time to pray, and that was the next night, and he prayed, and in the morning, he got up, he had the answer. So it's at least 24 hours, if not almost 48, before the king is going to find out the answer to his dream. What if he lived in our day? We want the answers now. Right now. Delay is hard for us. Whether it's waiting for the results of a medical test or waiting for a job or waiting for an answer to a prayer, it's hard to find people content with the word wait. It's a hard word. We've got this, this, these conditions in our day and age where Google's the answer. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a Google to say, what does this mean? Right? He didn't have a microwave oven for that matter either. Man has always been in a hurry to get answers. And the Lord has been teaching us, and I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> teaching us to wait. Because waiting is tied to trust. And it's tied to hope. There's some wonderful verses. You could go into Psalm 25, and you'll find the same thing over and over and over again. In Psalm 25, he says, wait. In Verse 3, wait. Verse 5, wait. Verse 21, wait. He keeps using those words all the way through chapter 27, by the way. He just says, wait, 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 wait. And what's interesting is, when you go and read that in like a New American Standard Version, you're seeing the word wait, 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 all the way through the text. And then you pull out one like the, the newer version, the Legacy Standard Version, and you read the same verses. Instead of wait, it says hope, 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 because they're the same word. Waiting and hoping are the same words. It's interesting that the Lord puts those together. Those are hard for us. You see, that's what sets a believer apart from all those others who don't trust the Lord. We know, even though we don't like it sometimes, we know that the Lord gives a delay at times. And that's always for a good reason, right? His ways are right. His ways are true. His ways are always what's best. And if he says to wait, that's for your good. That's for your good. That's where our hope is anchored. We've been waiting for a long time that the Lord would come and take us home. That's our hope, isn't it? We use the word, our blessed hope, when we talk about going home to be with the Savior. But his answers do come. And they always come at the right time. And they always come with the right purpose. Waiting is hard. Nebuchadnezzar did not have to wait a long time to find out what this meant. 
just a couple of days. The wise men asked for time, and he got mad at them. Daniel asked for time. He gave that. But impatience, folks, is not listed as God's virtue for us. Have you ever seen it? The fruit of the Lord is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, impatience, kindness, goodness. No, it's not in there. Oh, we weave it into our thinking. But God tells us to wait, to trust, to hope. You may say, well, those, those side issues, not exactly. Nebuchadnezzar had to wait. He had to wait some 24 to 48 hours before he got his answer. Guess what? You're going to wait a week. We're going to put it to practice today. I'm not giving you the interpretation. <laughs> not for a week. That's not because I'm mean. I'm just out of time. <laughs> so you've got to wait. But in this, we're going to learn of our hope. Our hope is that God is in control. We don't know tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen the rest of this day. But we do have a God who knows, right? We can trust in him. We can help in him. And so we're going to get back to our story next week and find out, what does it mean? What does it mean? You can read ahead, folks. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. You can read it yourselves. And if you haven't read the book yet, do it. But next week, we're going to talk about the interpretation. Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience with us. You know that we tend to be so impatient. We, we want answers quickly. We, we want to know what's happening and uh, what does it mean to us. And there are days and there are times that you tell us to wait. You put us in a place to have a sit and wait. You have a purpose for that. We have some folks among us that are struggling with some pretty heavy things. And Lord, we bring them up before you in prayer all the time and we ask you, Lord, to meet their need uh, especially your, the need for this day. Most of all, what we need is your grace that we can live and move and have our being. But Lord, we also ask for healing for those who are struggling. It's hard to wait when you don't feel well. It's hard to wait on the answer to the next test that's being taken. It's hard to wait to know the answers to the things that we need. But we have a God who knows our need before we ask it, who cares, who loves us, who does give the answers, and the answers always come at your right time, in your right way, for our good. But we're taught to wait. Lord, this dream that we're studying here today has ramifications far, far into the future yet. And we're going to be learning of those things. But most of all, Lord, teach us to trust you regardless. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Powers are and powers aren't. The world seems to think that it's going to last forever, but that will become chaff too. But our God is great. Our God is enduring. And our God loves us. May we walk forward with the confidence of trusting our God. May that be our hope. May that be our weight. As we trust in you, Lord, teach us more and more, we pray. And for those families that need it especially today, provide them with your hope. Encourage their hearts, we pray. And thank you for what you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.